Our text is 1 Corinthians. So I'll read 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to open our minds, have us to think clearly, and have us to think your thoughts. What is it that you would want us to take from this and all else that we read? We thank you, Lord, for minds that can understand, and yet uh, our minds are so limited apart from your Holy Spirit at work in us. So we ask you to have your Holy Spirit guide us, lead us. He is our guide. He is our counselor. We thank you for him and for his work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, Kate advised me to go as long as I could today. She apparently likes really, really long sermons. Last week, the first few minutes were lost, but yet I recorded them, so we'll splice that together. I hadn't realized that it wasn't on there until now. So we're in the third part of a five-part series entitled Marching Orders. So first was knowing what to do, and that was being reasonably certain of a goal or some direction in your life. The second part was wanting what to do, and that was to align our hearts with this that we have chosen to do. The third was planning what to do, and that's today, where we coordinate our thoughts and actions towards that goal. Next time, choosing what to do, avoiding distractions, staying focused, and then last will be do-do-do, hold ourselves accountable for it. Remember, head, heart, head, heart, hands, do it. Knowing what to do two weeks ago, we asked eight questions to assess the certainty of this decision that we were making. And we tried to then know if God was in it. Is God leading us into this? Is he with us in it? Is this, uh, does this receive his blessing? Last week was wanting what to do, and I ignored the great majority of things that you have decided to do because your heart is already aligned with those um, what you need help with and what we all need help with is to align our hearts to God's will when it isn't something that we really want to do, but we are convinced that God wants us to do it. And so we talked about three examples from Scripture, uh, Abraham, Jonah, Jesus, and two of the three got right with God. One of the three didn't. I'll let you listen if you forgot. And uh, today is about knowing uh, planning what to do, wanting, uh, knowing, uh, wanting, and planning. So now today, we want to talk about plans. How do, we, how do we create them? What's a good plan look like? Planning is something that we all do all the time. Two weeks ago, when we talked about knowing, we talked about it as decision-making. Knowing what to do is in part making wise decisions, and planning what to do is also about making wise decisions, but just over an extended period of time, work marching towards your goal. And so you'll find planning throughout the Bible, but the word only occurs 43 times in the whole Bible. Plan, plans, planned, planning, 43 times in the New King James. It seems odd that 
it would occur so rarely. But the concepts of planning are throughout Scripture. Uh, the Pentateuch alone, one time is the word used in those five books. Those five books make up only tw almost 20% of your Bible, and yet the word plan only occurs there once. But yet, if you think about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, I mean, there are so many things going on there that are planned and that God is incorporating us in the planning of. So it is a common topic amongst humans. Now, until recently, and I'd say in this generation, it was widely thought that animals don't plan, that animals all, always behave on instinct. And yet, really, in our generation, it could be said to have been proven that animals, at least some animals, do plan. Uh, and let me give you a few illustrations. There is a type of bird, it's called a scrub jay, that will hide food today for tomorrow where it's going to be. Now, perhaps that's instinct, but yet it shows that this bird is planning ahead. It's odd. There is a chimpanzee in Sweden, in a zoo there, and it will hide rocks all around its enclosure when the zoo is closed, such that it can throw them at people the next day that are coming to see him. So this is a chimp with an attitude, and he's planning ahead. He wants to be able the next day to have ready access to those rocks to throw at zoo visitors. And I guess the Swedish authorities let him do it. Elephants have been shown to protect people. There was a woman lost in Africa. She had poor vision, and she was lost at night, couldn't return to her tribe, I guess. These elephants, worried for her safety, built a cage of branches around her and protected her. So they came together to do this, to help this. Now, many of you have probably seen, actually, videos of elephants helping other creatures. There is proven to be empathy amongst animals. We humans might lack it at times, but animals often exhibit it. So all of these are potentially evidences of planning. Now, I would urge you to not be wary or overly sensitive to science. Yes, they have horrible assumptions, and they typically make horrible conclusions from their analysis. But the analysis itself, these studies, are really a gift to us. God has employed 99% unbelievers out there to research all these really cool things that we can learn about. Just don't be influenced by their assumptions and by their conclusions. I love reading about animals, and I've found that you can pretty much strike out all of the evolutionary thought, and really, it's not that hard. Just ignore it. Now, it's not something I'd have a, maybe a 10-year-old do, but still, train your children to do this, to be able to benefit from what they'll read in a society obsessed with the theory of evolution. Planning is common in Scripture, and what I want to share are seven aspects of what is considered a good plan, at least from the Bible's perspective. So let me share these with you. It's your first question on your handout. You might not catch all the words this first time through, but there will be an opportunity later for each one. First, good plans are consistent with God's will and direction. This makes sense. This is what we talked about two weeks ago. Knowing, being sure of a decision, is in part this point about the fact that what you're about to do is consistent with God's will and direction. The Bible is filled with examples of both good and evil plans. We talked about good and bad decisions, and in the Bible there are many examples of good and evil plans. And any plan that is evil is one that does not take God into account or explicitly opposes Him. Number two, good plans are to be assessed and can be improved by wise counsel. And the Bible, again, is filled with evidence of this, and I'll share some of it. Point three, good plans are clear, well-structured, and as simple as possible. You don't want to make the plan overly complicated. You want to be able to measure yourself by it later. So don't get bogged down too, too deeply in the details. Keep it simple if you can. Number four, good plans account for known variables. And what that means is that you begin 
this plan with a lot of stuff that you know, some stuff that you don't know and that you can't know, but what you know, you have the responsibility to account for. And so that should be a no-brainer, but I think many people form plans that aren't consistent with reality. I remember at Dilbert, where Dilbert is presenting and he points through the wall and he says that our business plan requires that an armored car with money crashes through that wall. That's not a realistic business plan. He was perhaps accounting for their need for money, but not in a realistic way. So, good plans must account for known variables, such as time, resources, and that could be stuff and people, as well as money. Point five, good plans depend upon support and involvement of others. You might think that your plan only affects you. You're probably not right. As small as anybody's plans might be, they affect other people. And we require other people to aid us in these plans and typically to help us fulfill these plans. So share them with the people that you need to share them with. Number six, good plans must be flexible and adapt to changing circumstances. No plans that you create will typically be fulfilled in exactly the way you intended and so you have to account for those differences. Point seven, good plans will be opposed by enemies of God because that's just the way life is. When you have something good, there will be others that don't think it's so good or will attack you because they know it to be good. Now, let's look at point one of the plan. Good plans are consistent with God's will and His direction. We know history is His story. God writes history. God is the one that gives us all that, has, uh, that happens. Let me read from Isaiah 46. I'll start reading at verse 9 in the middle of it. I am God, and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country, indeed I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. So our God accomplishes all that He desires. He's the only person that will ever accomplish all that He desires. And what's really interesting about what God accomplishes is that He does it through all of us having no clue as to what we're going to do tomorrow or next week or next year. And yet God is sovereign. God sees through time. He defines time. He has predestined what will occur. He knows what will happen. When I was a new believer, one of the things that I was uh, noticing, and you'll notice it when you read Exodus, is the phrasing of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It will say repeatedly that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but yet in a few places it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And I thought of them as separate things for a while until I began to see that, no, our wills are entirely encapsulated in God's overarching will. And so we can't plan our way or exercise or execute our way out of God's will. It is all-encompassing. That really freaks people out, especially Christians who don't know any better, who really don't know their Bible, because they just can't fathom it. And yet, what else is new? There is a lot in Scripture that we cannot fathom. We have to get over ourselves in needing, wanting to understand everything that we read in Scripture. Often we have to just believe it because God said it, it happened. Yes, that donkey spoke to Balaam. We don't know how it happened. We try to make excuses. Yes, all those miracles occurred in Egypt. We don't have to explain these to anybody. We just believe them. We acknowledge that our God is free to do what He wants with all of us because He owns all of us. 
Joseph told his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In Revelation 17, this is what is written. This is Revelation 17, 17. God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. God put it in their minds and hearts to be of one mind, to give over their power to the beast until God's will was accomplished. In Acts 5, Gamaliel advised the Sanhedrin this, when they were dealing with Peter, this remarkable fisherman preacher. Gamaliel said, if this plan is of God, you cannot overthrow it. And the Sanhedrin took his advice. They had Peter beaten and the disciples and then released, but yet they did take his advice. He appeared to get through to them that time. Now, what I've been speaking of is God's plans. Not only are all plans God's plans, all your plans ought to be God's plans as well. Are they? Have your plans, all of your plans, been sanctified by the Lord? Gamaliel's words were, if this plan is of God, you cannot overthrow it, and you might find yourself fighting against God, which of course you don't want to do. You will lose. Joshua 5 contains one of the greatest questions and answers. Joshua goes up. It's just after they've all been circumcised. They're waiting to heal up to go into the promised land. And Joshua sees this man standing opposite him with a drawn sword. Joshua goes up to him and asks, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And what is his famous answer? No. It's an either-or answer. I believe. Joshua intended it to be answered either or. And the man, this angel of the Lord, did not answer it. No. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. He's God's representative right there at the head of an army that God himself has directed to take the promised land. But yet he would not say that he was on Joshua's side because he's always on God's side, the right side. Because oftentimes we're not on the right side. So God is not going to be on our side. There's a famous quote by Lincoln. I don't know if it's apocryphal. I think it's real. The first time it was written down was in 1881 in an article. But I believe it was a Baptist delegation that had come to visit him at the White House, and they assured him that God was on the side of the North. And Lincoln appears to have uh, had no consolation from their statement. He said this in response. My concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side because God is always right. So this was a rebuke to these Christians, and I love it. Proverbs 19.21 reads, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. It prevails because it's right. It prevails because God has mandated that it is so. It is the plan with a capital P. And so when we create plans, what we're trying to do is form a plan that's consistent with God's plan for us. We are attempting to interpret the future, the trajectory of our lives, and build a plan that coincides with it. Proverbs 16.9 reads, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Now, in this, there is hope for us. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. See, we can have a bad plan, and yet if you're walking with God, God will direct you. You will deviate from your own plan, but it's for your benefit. He'll make it better than you intended it to be. So that was point one. Good plans are consistent with God's will and direction. Point two is this. Good plans are to be assessed and can be improved by wise counsel. How do you know your plans are good? We are finite people. We can't be absolutely certain. 
Can our plans be improved upon? Well, you can examine them, you can study them, you can refine them, but as long as it's only you, you're limited to your experience, your knowledge, your wisdom. Proverbs 15.22 says, without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Now, studies have shown that groups problem-solve better than individuals. Now, this has been known for a long time. There was a study in 1932, a behavioral researcher by the name of Marjorie Shaw, and she had groups of four people solving riddles and then individuals solving riddles. And given the nature of the study, almost every time the group of four solved the riddle faster and better than the individuals. Now, there are, are always going to be stellar individuals that will perform any one of those tasks better. But on average, the group does better. I've been in many team-building classes over my career. Uh, many of you probably have, too. And if there is one staple of any team-building class that you're in that goes for a day or more, is that you're going to waste at least one or two, or I mean invest wisely at least an hour or two in doing a team building where what it intends to prove is that the individual is not as wise and knowledgeable as the group. Now, sometimes it will turn it on its head, and that's kind of sad, but usually it's true. Usually, you can take a group of eight or nine people, have them each take the test, have them compare their results, and they all get a chance to change their answers, and what they come up with in the collective is better. This is largely why people study in groups and are not allowed to take tests in groups. Now, there is a show that I think might still be on TV, I'm not sure. But it was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And so many of you have probably seen at least one or two episodes of that. There were three what were called lifelines that the participant in this show could resort to when trying to get help. They didn't know this. First was the 50-50. They have a question. They don't know which answer is correct. There are four answers given. The 50-50 will knock two of them out, and almost always knocks out two, it seems, that none of us would believe is correct anyway. So it knocks out the easy ones. Then the next one is phone a friend. So before they've gone in the show, they've lined up friends, multiple of them, experts in this, 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 that, and the other, and then they call the friend that they have identified to be an expert in this topic that the question relates to. And then the third one is ask the audience. They have an audience of just, you know, maybe two, two to 250 people, and the audience can use a device at their seat to let them know what they want, what they think is right. 50-50, now, you might not be majors in math, but you should realize that 50-50 is about half right, right? You're eliminating half of them, so 50%. Phone a friend is correct about two-thirds of the time. So you call your expert friend, and about two times out of three, they have the right answer. The audience is correct over 90% of the time. So if you look at what the audience has said, and, and the, you pick the highest answer, that's going to be right more than nine times out of ten. There is a term for this. It's called the wisdom of the crowd. That in aggregate, we are intelligent. No matter how stupid any one of us is. But in aggregate, we can tend to do these things. It's, it's amazing. As a matter of fact, and this is what's really interesting, even guessing we are better in aggregate than we are as individuals. A study was done You've probably all seen where you guesstimate the number of jelly beans in a jelly bean jar. And I love that game. I love attempting to estimate volume. So I'm not saying I'm good at it. I have no idea, you know, because you write the answer down and you walk away, and unless you won, they never tell you. But I like to do them if I see them. So even if you're way off, even if I had a jelly bean jar here that had, say, 850 jelly beans in it, I'm giving you the answer. You would all estimate. Some of you are horrible. You guess 100. You guess 2,000. But if I averaged every one of your answers together, 2%, plus or minus. So 850, that's 17 jelly beans. So if I averaged all your answers out, you'd have said between 830 and 870 jelly beans. That's pretty good. That's pretty interesting to me. 
right? So there is wisdom, even in stupid people. So don't sell yourself short. There's wisdom in the masses of us. Who knows? Maybe it was your answer that was right on. Okay. Proverbs 12.15 reads, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. So see, there's counsel out there. You might even ask people their counsel. But if you're so proud so as to never even want to receive the counsel, you just kind of have to check the box. You know, my, my, my advisor told me, I have to ask you your opinion. I really couldn't care less, but I have to ask. So see, we can go to this with a bad attitude and not heed our counselors. Now, too, though, we can go to the opposite extreme. We can just do whatever it is they tell us because we don't want responsibility. Now I can blame Brian. I've asked Brian. He says he's an expert in this. He gave me this answer. I'm going to go with that. Because then if I'm wrong, I can blame him for the rest of my life. He cost me the million dollars. So see, you can't do that. You have to rely upon your own wits, but avail yourself of counselors. I want you to listen to this Proverbs 15:22 again. Without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. This supports that wisdom of the crowds. In the multitude of counselors, they are established. It doesn't even say they're wise counselors. I believe this proverb is proving the wisdom of the crowds uh, based on the studies that have recently been done. God put it in here for us to see. Proverbs 1.5 reads, A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. It doesn't say that he retains wise counsel. It said he attains wise counsel. So right there at the beginning of Proverbs, it says that if you are listening, if you want to be wise, you will be wise, and you will be wise to the point where people will see it. They'll come to you for your advice because you listen. You don't just rely upon your own wisdom. You benefit from the wisdom of all, and you incorporate it into your thinking. So that was point two. Good plans are to be assessed and can be improved by wise counsel. Point three. Good plans are clear, well-structured, and as simple as possible. I want to read 1 Kings 5. This concerns Solomon's building of the temple. I'll read a few verses. 1 Kings 5, starting at verse 6. Now, he's, this is a letter to King Hiram of Tyre. Now, therefore, command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say, for you know there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. So it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. Then Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the message which you sent me, and I will do all you desire concerning the cedar and cypress logs. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea. I will float them in rafts by sea to the place you indicate to me, and I will have them broken apart there. Then you can take them away." and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. The point I made was good plans are clear, well-structured, and as simple as possible. So you can see that these are clear. Hiram is to manage Solomon's men, name his own men's wages. Solomon's given him that responsibility. It's well-structured. Solomon and Hiram both refer to the who, what, where, when, and how of this negotiation that they're in the midst of. They refer to who's going to do the work, what's going to be done, where it's going to happen, where the logs are going to be floated to. There's no clear answer as to when, but in the next reading, there is. Let me continue at verse 10 and read that through 14. Then Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of pressed oil. Thus Solomon gave to Hiram year by year, so we know it took years. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom, as he had promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty together. Then King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel, and the labor force was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the labor force." 
Solomon built a fairly simple structure for accomplishing all of this work, named one man, Adoram, to, to lead it, employed 30,000 of his own people to go up and participate in this, allowed Hiram to do on his end whatever he needed to do, didn't get into his business as to how he was going to organize the work. So what you see here in this letter exchange between Hiram and Solomon is a really good plan coming together. It's clear what they each expect of one another. They know how to fulfill this plan. And that was point three. Good plans are clear, well-structured, and as simple as possible. Number four, good plans account for known variables. I stressed this when I summarized them at the start. Let me read from our original text, 1 Corinthians 16. There are three aspects of the plan here that Paul is sharing that I want to emphasize. I'll read verses uh, 1 through 4 to start. Concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So he's clearly telling them that he wants this process put in place. And why? Because he didn't want to be bothered with it when he arrives there because he not, might not have much time. What's interesting about this too is that in the context of him addressing this solution to this problem for Corinthians, we still do this. We still collect money weekly in order to use it for the church's needs. And he goes on, And when I come... Whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So he's being flexible, but he's telling them what the plan is. This is what we're going to do. He covers the who. It's for the saints. It's from each one of you. He covers the what. Lay something aside, storing it up. No collections when I come each week. Who? Whomever you approve. They can come with me. Maybe I'll go too. So he's covering all the who, what, when, uh, where, how type questions. Then he covers the timing of his arrival. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not wish to see you now on the way. Well, now what he's saying here is I don't wish to see you just in passing. That's what that means. It's kind of an odd phrase in the King James, in the New King James. For I do not wish to see you now in passing, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me there. So he shares, again, a lot of these details, what his plans are. Now, the reason I share this, and I'm not going to bring closure to it, but the second letter to the Corinthians, there's obviously been a big misunderstanding concerning this visit from Paul. And it's addressed in 2 Corinthians. And we might get into that when I'm talking in future weeks about uh, carrying out the plans and monitoring them. So Paul addressed the known variables, and he hinted at the unknown. In verse 7, he says, if the Lord permits. So he refers to a part of the plan that might or might not come together based on what God is doing. So that's point four. Good plans account for known variables. Point five. Good plans depend upon the support and involvement of others. We read about Solomon forging an alliance with Hiram to build the temple. And I, I won't have time to read to you, but David's preparation for Solomon to build the temple is incredible. David so wanted to build that temple. He had the plans. He had a, a bunch of materials. He had it all laid out. He had this from the Lord. God's Spirit gave this to David, and David recorded it all. Yet, he was not the one to build it. It was given to Solomon. Now, people love epic adventure. Even if you can't be on the adventure yourself, you want to read about it. You want to be a part of it to the degree that you can. We want to be involved. And so anybody, anybody forming a plan where it relies upon this, the uh, support of others really ought to get them encouraged. Now, you can't do it too early. You don't want people to burn out. But you must spark the flame and feed the flame of the enthusiasm over time, especially if you're getting something new off the ground. I received a letter a few days ago. Maybe some of you did too. It was from uh, Todd Adams. He is an elder in the CPC. He ministers at large, kind of amongst various communities. And uh, he's been doing this for 15 years. This was 
an introductory to their 15th year, filled in hearth. And they had attended a missionary conference with thousands of people back in early January. And they said they sat way up at the top, and yet all these people were on fire for the Lord. And yet everybody that attended that conference recognized themselves as being one of two people or potentially both. They were going to be a, a goer. They were actually going to go into the mission field or they were going to be a sender. They were going to support those going into the mission field, or they could potentially do both. Now, I have a question in your outline about that. Do we accept that? Is that a legitimate either-or that we have, as opposed to the question that uh, Joshua asked the angel of the Lord? Goers or senders? Who wants to be involved? Life is an adventure. A Christian life is even more of an adventure. Moses was tasked with building and equipping the tabernacle, and yes, it can be very boring, yet there are also parts of that that are very beautiful. Everything that they used to build the tabernacle, think of it, had to come with them out of Egypt. They're carrying it, or it's on a cart being pulled along. And then this call goes out, and I'll read from Exodus 35. Exodus 35, starting at verse 4. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart, and that is emphasized throughout the remainder of the chapter, willing, willing, willing. Let him bring it as an offering to the Lord, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. So a call went out to the people with a list of this is what we would like. And this is what happened. The people started bringing it. We go to Exodus 36, again reading at verse 4. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing. And they spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done, indeed too much. So they were very generous. The call had gone out. They were part of a big work and they knew it and they wanted to see this succeed. Good plans depend upon the support and involvement of others. So if you're working on plans, run them by people at times. Uh, again, you don't want to do it too early. You don't want to do it un until they're better baked, perhaps, but you want to share. Point number six, good plans must be flexible and adapt to changing circumstances. My example here is when David was fleeing Jerusalem. He has his whole household with him. This plan had to get whipped together pretty quickly because Absalom is coming with his army. I'll read starting at 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up, and he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain, where he worshipped God, there was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, then you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now also be your servant, then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. So see, there are two things in quick succession there. David is fleeing, he's weeping, he's barefooted, his whole household is with him. This is not the best frame of mind to make decisions. 
So what is his first prayer? When he hears that Ahithophel is with Absalom, he's one of the conspirators, he prays to God, O God, make Ahithophel's wisdom foolishness. Now this is a Hail Mary. And David knows it. God knows it. I don't want to be sacrilegious here, but I could just imagine God rolling his eyes at this request. Like, well, okay, David, if you can't think of anything better, I'll help you out here maybe. Because God does answer such crazy requests we have at times. He loves us. He knows our weakness. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. So maybe David would have had that answered, but there is Hushai the archite, this wise man. So he asks him, go back there, undermine, oppose the wisdom of Ahithophel. And he does, and we know he succeeds. It's just a beautiful picture of God himself answering David's prayer. But he didn't answer David's prayer in the way that David had expected. He asked to have Ahithophel's advice be foolishness. What's funny, though, is later when Ahithophel kills himself, that's more or less what he was admitting. It was foolish for me to take on this task of advising Absalom. I went against David. I went against the Lord. So he had behaved foolishly. It had already been done when he had chosen to go with Absalom. Good plans must be flexible and adapt to changing circumstances. David had more faith in God than most any of us, and yet he acted immediately on this new information. His first prayer request he knew was weak. What he wanted was weak. So immediately a new plan was devised and carried out, and it proved to be successful. Number seven, good plans will be opposed by enemies of God. Because we're God's child, and because we're trying to do a good thing, we can assume that our plan will be embraced and supported by others, especially those that we know are Christian friends, our supporters, yet they will often oppose us, even those that we would think would normally support us. And yet God can sometimes draw out this horrible Interesting fighting between Christians. We've seen it in our culture over and over again. Now, enemies is perhaps a strong word to use. The phrase I have is good plans will be opposed by enemies of God. But they will be opposed. And they might not even know why they're so virulently opposing you. But they are. They're digging in their heels and they're fighting. Paul, when he's being rebuked by the Lord from the light, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul was fighting God. Gamaliel had warned about that at the Sanhedrin. We can all fight God at times. Like I said, we won't win. But we can do that. In our foolishness, in our hubris, we might find ourselves doing this. And the thing, just like when you're digging a hole in the wrong place, the first thing to do is stop digging. When you find yourself fighting against God, stop, admit it, repent, confess your stupidity. But again, our pride will prevent us from doing this in a timely manner. We'll want to do it more graciously. We'll want to save face by doing it in this other way. No, no. If you find yourself opposing God, admit it. Acknowledge it. Jesus said a man's enemies will be those in his own household. Now, if the Word of God divides nuclear families, then you know it's going to divide Churches, political parties, all these things. So what you must not presume is that everybody you share your plan with is going to love it and is going to just jump on board with it. Be aware that what they are giving you at this point may be very helpful criticism. It might not be. They're not buying into it at all. They're, they didn't get past the first point two weeks ago, knowing. You are at the knowing so now you're building the plan. They might oppose your plan just on principle. You need to catch that. But you also be, need to be receptive to their criticism. There is a phrase that's popular saying, no good deed goes unpunished. This is a rather dark way of looking at us attempting to do what's right, what's good. 
But yet, you must. We must. We are God's children. We heard that earlier at the communion meditation. God expects His children to behave like Him, and He is good. He loves people, even the obstinate, pig-headed, stupid people like us. We like to think of other people as being the obstinate, stupid, pig-headed people, but sometimes it's us, and so we must have patience with others. Isaac dug wells, and Abimelech's men kept taking them until finally Isaac dug a well, and they didn't take it. I am so appreciative of Isaac's patience. He was using the digging of the wells as determining whether he was a sufficient distance away from Abimelech. It's wisdom. He was behaving, in a sense, wisely. But we just think he's weak. He's cowardly. Go fight them. Why? If you're fighting them now, that means you're going to keep fighting them forever. Move away. Sometimes it's best to move away. Fight again another day, as they say. I'm such a poet. <laughs> Jacob worked for Rachel for seven years, and yet Laban tricked him into taking Leah. Now, let's clarify something. I've seen this error over the, all over the place on the web. He did not work another seven years and then get Rachel. He fulfilled Leah's marriage week and then got Rachel. It's part of the reason that Leah was rewarded with children so quickly, because God saw that she was unloved. Because once, once he got Rachel, oh, he wasn't as interested in Leah now. Nehemiah was tasked to rebuild the wall. All you young men were in a study back here. And yet, Sanballat and Tobiah opposed this. And yet, good plans will be opposed by enemies of God, and we'll talk about this in more depth when we talk about the do-do-do. And next week, the choosing what to do. These are very important, and this does not end it right here. This is just to tell you, expect opposition. As you create your plan, expect it. Don't expect it to be easy. Now, that covers the seven points, but what you may be surprised by is that I really haven't gotten into the details or the mechanics of planning at all. And I apologize for that because that would take much longer, and... Uh, in keeping with or in violating my promise to Kate, I'm going to end it pretty soon. But I want to share a few things about planning, just practical things. What we've shared are, are kind of like aspects of evaluating or knowing whether you have a good plan at all. Yet, there are many, many things that you can do to create the good plan. Far more things than I've shared here. Let me share some. First, you want the proper level of detail. You can't have it be too vague, yet you can't have it be too detailed. It needs to be just the right amount of detail, where it's appropriate. And really refer to what Solomon and Hiram exchanged in terms of their strategic plan to build the temple and get the wood for it. That's a good strategic level. But tactically, there would have been many things that Donoram would have had to have implemented in order to do this well. 1,000, 10,000 people, they all have names. They all have homes. They all have to be added to lists, lots of details. Two. Objectives need to be clear. The main thing about a plan is that you need to know where you're going. You need to know what you want. If your plans change midstream, it changes everything. You have to rethink everything. Step three, or, or uh, the third element, uh, who must be involved by when and to what degree? We've discussed that to some extent, but your plans should incorporate that. Specific dated goals should be set and managed and adjusted as needed. Five, you, there are helpful tools available for this planning. Uh, at at uh, my employer, uh, UP, my former employer, brainstorming, list reduction, weighted voting, there were very good tools that they gave us in this little book that was handed out to everybody that participated in what was called a quality improvement team. And those tools are very helpful. It helps to guide thinking. It helps to gain consensus. It helps to eliminate uh, uh, the waste of time. Number six, Decompose large problems into smaller ones. Uh, like I said, that, that uh, building of the temple, the acquiring of all that wood, that's a big problem, and yet you begin with the big stuff. Just make the big objectives. This is what we want by when, and then you break each of them down, get them smaller and smaller, and, until they're simple enough then to understand and to convey to people that you're communicating with. And uh, they will be less clear at first, less detailed. That's fine. And your plans should change. They'll always have to change. Be ready for that. And the seventh, tackle the first things first. 
we can't obsess over things that we don't have to deal with today. If we don't have to deal with it today, don't. Put it off to the future. There are lots of things that you have to keep kicking down the road because you're busy with these other things that are more pressing. That's a, a fundamental aspect of good planning. There is an acronym that I'll kind of share last here. It's called SMART. A good plan would have these five elements. Specific goals, measurable goals. Anybody that's involved in it has agreed to it. They're aware of it. Realistic goals. You don't just want to lie to people, yourself included. And they're time-balanced. You've attributed time to all of these. All of these may change, but you need to have them and you need to manage to them. Now, as I said at the start, all humans, we all have the ability to plan. Uh, not all of us exercise this ability equally well. But as with all exercise, practice makes perfect. If you plan, you'll get better at it. So don't just say, I'm no good at planning, I need someone to do it for me. Do it. Get better at it. You will. Your skill at planning will improve with practice. I hope this has been helpful, identifying a good plan, evaluating a good plan, building a good plan, and so next time we'll get to actually acting on it. And that's really where the rubber meets the road. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you give us your word that is just filled with such rich examples of uh, good and bad plans, good and bad decisions. We pray, Lord, that we would live in accordance with your word, that we would seek to do your will, that we would recognize that it is your plan that we are seeking to accomplish. Lord, you put it in our hearts to serve you, to be faithful to you, and we pray that you would make clear to us what it is that you would have us to do, who it is that we should ask to be involved with it. We are so excited about life, and we pray, Lord, that you would have that to be contagious, have enthusiasm for life, drive this church, drive our dreams and our visions and our day-to-day -day work. We thank you for all of your many blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.